to this installment of the World Ethnography Project podcast. I'm Zoe Cole, and I'll be talking about Women of Fez, Ambiguities of Urban Life in Morocco by Rachel Newcomb. It was published in 2009 by the University of Pennsylvania Press and is available through the publisher for $26.50. Rachel Newcomb is a professor of anthropology at Rollins College. She has written one other ethnography on Morocco called Everyday Life in Global Morocco, which was covered in another episode of this podcast. Her writing style is easy and enjoyable to read. In Women of Fez, Newcomb examines the role of women in the city of Fez in northern Morocco and how these roles are renegotiated in this age of globalization. The city was founded over a thousand years ago and is steeped in history and tradition, though Morocco itself is a young country, only having regained independence from France in 1956. Much of the book focuses on the Mudawana, legal code relating to family issues such as marriage and inheritance. These laws have hardly changed since the 50s. Still, globalization is changing Moroccan society and the ways that the Mudwana applies to new ideas brought in or the new spaces created such as gyms or cyber cafes, which can be unclear and difficult to navigate. Women of Fez follows a number of women of different backgrounds, social classes, and occupations. One informant, Malika, escaped an abusive marriage. Her father married her off at the age of 14 for his own gain. Because of her experience, Malika is a strong supporter of women's rights. Another informant, Khadija, is a lawyer who focuses on family law. Her views are more conservative, and she supports the Mudawana, though she doesn't wear hijab. Her views are shaped by religion and her higher social and economic status. Here is a reading from the book starting on page 66 on a story the author told Khadija and their discussion following that. A case in point was the situation of Musin, whose parents, the Ben Silmans, lived in my apartment building. A dashing man in his early forties, with twinkling eyes and thick brown hair streaked with grey, Musin lived in Spain, where he ran a successful café with his brother. He asked his parents to find out if there were any marriageable girls in the Lux neighborhood where he had grown up, and after making inquiries, they suggested a young woman in her twenties whose family also lived in the neighborhood. Musin and Latifa began corresponding, and he returned for the engagement party, where he, he discussed the stock, or bride price, with Latifa's father. They agreed on the amount of 50,000 dirhams, about $5,000, which would be noted in the marriage contract. By all accounts, Latifa and Musin were both excited about the marriage. They exchanged letters, and once a week Latifa would go to a cyber cafe to chat with Musin over a webcam on the internet. He began, the process, he began to process the visa paperwork to bring her back to Spain with him, and several months later the wedding was held in a spacious apartment belonging to Latifa's cousin. The bride entered in a beaded white caftan, and the small group of hired musicians played wedding music. Musin and Latifa sat atop a mountain of pillows holding hands, while guests came forward to offer their congratulations. The guests had already been celebrating for a few hours when the couple retired to a private room where, with both sets of parents and two religious notaries, a jewel, who would execute the contract. But when Musin stated they agreed upon bride price, Latifa's father shook his head. No, he said to Musin, that's not enough for my daughter. He demanded $35,000 more than the 5000 they had originally agreed upon. Musin was stunned. The amount was far more than he could afford. The Adul shrugged. What could he do if the father refused to give away his daughter? 
Humiliated, Latifa begged her mother to intercede. But her father called off the proceedings. The word went out immediately to the guests filling the salons, a disagreement at the last minute over the amount of the sadak. The guests speculated. Perhaps the father had learned something about Musin's reputation that prevented him from giving away his daughter. Or maybe there was another contender for his daughter's hand. Rather tasteless people agreed to change the, the couple's fortunes at the last minute. Latifa's mother pleaded half-heartedly with her husband to allow the ceremony to continue, but the father refused. The wedding was called off, and later that week, Musin returned to Spain, alone. Before their son traveled, Musin's family tried to negotiate with Latifa's father, but the father continued to refuse, claiming that Musin did not value his daughter highly enough to give her a larger bride price. Do they think she's a piece of merchandise? Musin's mother cried. Does he want to sell his daughter to the highest bidder? Musin gave up and left the country. There were various rumors about why the father had refused, and the strongest among them was that he had heard that Musin had a fair amount of money tucked away in Spain. Latifa herself did not participate in the negotiations. Her father insisted that he knew what was best for her, and that these were matters beyond her understanding. Latifa had wanted to marry Musin, and in fact, for months had been looking forward to moving to Spain. But she had no choice. Under Maliki law, if her father refused, she would have to go to a judge, who would determine whether or not her father was being reasonable. How could she dispute his authority and risk alienating her family, who might then refuse to help her in the event of a divorce? It was better not to disrupt the family harmony, especially when another candidate for Latifa's hand soon came forward, a man originally from the neighborhood who now owned a factory and could pay the full bride price that Latifa's father demanded. I reported the incident to Khadija, who is patient with my never-ending questions about the Mudawana. It is sad, but the girl will get over it, she said. She's young. She'll have other chances at happiness. But don't you think, I argued, that it should have been her choice whether or not to marry him? Should the father have the absolute right here? Khadija sighed. In America, doesn't your father give you away when he walks you down the aisle? Not technically, I said. It's just a custom. We don't need our father's legal consent to get married. It's the same here, she insisted. The wali is a custom. It's a safeguard to protect the daughter from marrying someone who would be bad for her, especially in the cases where the girl is young and she's marrying an older man. The daughter does not have the age and experience of her parents. They know what is best for her and could possibly keep her from marrying someone who would hurt her. We can still choose our husbands. In most cases, the parents won't interfere. They respect us. The law gives them the option of stepping in if we're making a mistake. If they eliminate the wali and the girl married someone her parents didn't approve of, what if she had problems with him later? The parents would say, well, we were not consulted to begin with, so we're not going to help you now. Khadija did not know the Ben Slimans, but offered her own opinion on the situation. You said the husband was about 40, and she was no more than 20 or 21? That age difference is the perfect reason why parents should be involved. How can a 21-year-old know anything of the world? Does she know the man she's marrying, or what it means to be married? A father's consent is absolutely necessary. Probably he saved her from something she would have regretted. The young bride, like the people from the countryside, needed protection. At issue was not only whether the bride lacked the common sense to contract her own marriage without a guardian's approval, but also whether marriage is an affair of families or individuals. The tension between the traditional traditional view of marriage as a means of forming alliances and the modern 
stance that marriage is based on love and the desire of the couple to establish a nuclear family has still not been fully resolved. After all, did Musi not approach his marriage traditionally, seeking intermediaries to find him a wife? Quoted section ends. The book also discusses an a non-governmental association called the Najia Belgazi Center, where volunteer lawyers educated women on their rights and helped interpret the Muduana for them. Another fascinating chapter of the ethnography was the story of Layla, a singer. Her dream was to have a successful career as a singer, uh, an occupation that was seen as akin to prostitution in Morocco. She worked hard and refused to compromise her values for her career's sake, but in the end she seemed to give up on her dreams. I was heartbroken for her. I'm not going to read that story here, but you can check it out yourself. I would very strongly recommend this ethnography to others. Western society is very Eurocentric, and American society in particular is very Christian-focused. Books like this can do so much to expand one's worldview. I think it's especially important with how much hatred towards Muslims there is in the world today. Understanding between different cultures is key. And through exposure to stories like those of the women in this book, we can begin to broaden our worldview past the horizons we can see with our own eyes. I've heard many a man ask why feminism exists today. Women have rights in America, but I want to live in a world where nothing stands in between a woman and achieving her dreams. I'm not trying to say that people should go to other countries and forcibly change things, but this ethnography made me consider what can and should be done. Thank you for listening to this episode of the World Ethnography Project. Be sure to check out the other installments.